Jeremiah chapter 33 and beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is, that is waste without man or beast, and in all of its cities there shall be again, and, again habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will call, cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? 
Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. This is God's word. Let's pray. For your word, we give you thanks again, Lord, and we pray that you would take it now and speak to our hearts. Open our eyes to see wonderful things, to see great and hidden things. In your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, chapter 33 is the conclusion of the book of Consolation that began uh, in chapter in, in chapter thir- 30. Now my, my brain has gone blank. 30 or 31? 30. All right. Uh, the book of consolation. Uh, so the book of comfort that, uh, that God has given through Jeremiah to speak to Judah at the time that their enemy is attacking from the outside. Jeremiah is, this is really a continuation of chapter 32. Uh, Jeremiah is still in, under, under, is imprisoned in the court guard there. Uh, this passage contains, in a sense, a summary and some of the things that it mentions are things that have already been covered, but there are new details as well in the good news of the new covenant. Really, this passage shines the new covenant, I think, the most brightly in this whole, in this whole book of consolation, helping us to see that God's plan of redemption is one that has been and continues to be revealed throughout history. In seminary, in, when you study systematic theology, when it comes to covenant theology, you look at this passage, this, these 31 to 33 in particular, and of course it all fits and makes sense. But there's something different about coming to it, for me at least, this approach, having preached through the book of Jeremiah and coming now to chapter 33 that makes me just a little bit more excited about it. That from the very beginning, from the promise given in the garden that, that, that as the covenant of grace is announced, that I will send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. And then through the covenants to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, each unwraps more and more until we see the full light of the new covenant revealed in Jesus Christ. This new covenant that is being spoken of in this chapter is the climax of when, or reaches its climax when the Messiah arrives, accomplishing and fulfilling all the promises that have been given. As we read in 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so the spirit's presence then in our lives is the pledge, the seal that we have been given pointing to our great salvation and the final restoration that awaits us. It is the proof that God has written his law upon our hearts and it is the power to convict us of sin and to lead us in righteousness in this life. Jeremiah's closing words in this book of consolation provide the people with the hope of the coming restoration. At a time when it was very difficult, he says to them, call to me and I will show you great and hidden things. Hidden things pointing to the new covenant that would dawn with the arrival of the Messiah, the righteous branch of David, 
and the enlarging covenant realities of all that had been promised in the past. This includes the land which is spoken of, the the temple, the throne of Israel itself, broadening to show that this is more than just temporal or earthly promises. These are promises that point further off to something far greater than an earthly throne, an earthly piece of real estate, an earthly temple. Why? Because it includes the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing that is required for righteousness. What the people could never acquire on their own, God has done for them. The testimony that would come out of Israel through the Messiah, the Messiah was was from Israel, he was born a Jew. This testimony would then serve to the nations as a testimony of what God has done, that it would result in many peoples, peoples of all nations, tribes, and tongues, come to be saved, which includes us today. Finally, the passage includes the consummation of the kingdom, the true fortunes, the fortunes of redemption being restored to the people of God. So chapter 33 is this holistic picture of covenant fulfillment to give hope to Judah in their misery. And it's our hope as well. As we face various trials in this life and hardships, when we're sinned against, when we suffer broken relationships, when we are are given a life-altering diagnosis, when we suffer in broken bodies, when we sin ourselves and we suffer the consequences of our own rebellion, when we face loss and grief and misery and suffer the heartbreak of this sin-wrecked world, we have a hope rooted in our covenant-keeping promise-fulfilling, never-changing God who has redeemed us and made us his children. For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So looking now at our text, we see that again, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. He's still in prison there in the court of the guard. And Yahweh gives kind of a lengthy introduction of himself to Jeremiah, the one who made it, who formed it, who established it. It's pointing to all of creation. The word earth is inserted here. It's not actually in the, in the Hebrew, and so, but it would certainly include the earth. We could equally put creation or just put everything. That he established everything. If you were in Sunday school this morning, that Colossians 1 passage, right? Everything, all things uh, he made and, were, and these things were made for him. Now he's reminding Jeremiah that the, and the people as well that he is the one who, by whose power everything was made. Because they needed to know that he had the power to restore them. Their situation was hopeless. The Babylonian army literally barraging their city and laying siege to it. And so they needed hope. And he's speaking this hope to them. And then he adds, uh, the Lord is his name to echo his power to redeem and save. And so with this introduction, he, then he, then, he then instructs them in verse 3, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. What uh, a promise in the face of peril. Now, what would the people of Judah preferred? Probably a strong arm to deliver in the moment. But... Jeremiah has been prophesying all along the judgment that's coming and and the reasoning for it. It's justified. They have sinned perpetually again and again. They've not received the instruction of the Lord. They've resisted the Lord. So he says, I'm going to send the Babylonians. So this was inevitable. God had promised the judgment and justified the judgment. But even in the judgment, 
Just as we read in that psalm together this morning, God will not remove his love from his people. And so he says to them, call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. A comfort with all the sights and sounds of destruction raining down around them. Now, we've talked some about context and taking promises from Old Testament passages and applying them to us today. And we have to be careful when we do this. But I think this particular verse, I I don't see any problem in applying this. Call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and hidden things. Why? Because we see this command and this call in other passages of Scripture as well. Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Or Psalm 91, 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Or Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In all of these instances where the people are instructed to call upon God, it isn't simply for information. It's always in the context of being saved, being delivered, which is what the people needed. And so here again, we can, we can call to God that he would show us great and hidden things. However, we must not miss the immediate context of this promise given in Jeremiah 33. And here it is the new covenant that is being revealed and explained. If you haven't been with us in the previous weeks, it may not make as much sense, but this, this book of consolation is the introduction of the new covenant that Jeremiah is explaining to the people that, that a day is coming, a new covenant is coming. And so here is this kind of summation of what that promise is. The good news that is coming, the promised new covenant is further to unfold in the passage itself, which I hope you'll see this morning. Now, he begins with the city itself. He talks about the destruction that's happening, even as it's happening. <laughs> and uh, Jeremiah it can hear it. He can probably see evidence of it, probably smell the burning and all the other uh, wonderful smells that go with warfare. The houses are in the city are being torn down. And it says for two reasons. One, they're being used uh, against the siege. Uh, so the, 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 they're looking for, for stones, for rocks to, to fortify the walls as these siege ramps are being built up. But sadly, they're also being used to remove, to dig holes in the ground to bury the people because so many are dying. They would never bury people inside the city normally, but because the way to, to, to bury people outside the city was cut off by the enemy, they had no choice. And so they're tearing down houses to not only fight against the, the Chaldeans, but also to bury their dead. And the Lord attributes the attack to the army of Babylon, but then he adds that it is he, the Lord, who is striking down in anger and wrath, for I have hidden my face from the city because of all their evil, verse 5. But then in verse 6, it abruptly shifts to consolation. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. The plain reading of this and similar texts would lead us to understand that God is going to heal the people by or through an abundance of prosperity and security. And again, I'm, I kind of got ahead of myself in Sunday school this morning. I was chomping at the bit a little bit. But, like, you know, curse me with this, right? Sign me up. I'd like to be, you know, blessed or cursed with the abundance of prosperity and security. We all would. I mean, that's, that's what we, you know, we, we work and labor for in this life. That's where most of our fears reside, is that we won't have the abundance that we need, that we won't have the security that we need. And so it looks like the answer is that God is going to simply provide an abundance and security. But obviously there is so much more than just that for Judah 
and for us, more than just having their earthly fortunes restored. At our Wednesday men's breakfast, we're beginning to go through the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question of the Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer begins that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the second question is, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this? And the answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. It is our only comfort in life and in the face of death that is Jesus. Not because he can give us healed bodies and a prosperous bank account. There is more to the great and hidden things that the new covenant promises. And the more is there in the next verse. Verse 8, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Now that sounds repetitive. And normally when we see repetition, we think emphasis when we think of Hebrew. But there's more than just the emphasis. Because in the original Hebrew, three different words are used for sin. The three main words uh, used, you know, we, we have one word, sin. The Hebrews had three different words to describe three different types of sin, all of which we can understand. The first word means twisted or bent. The second means to miss the mark. And the third, simply to rebel. The readers of the Book of Consolation would have understood all three nuances, uh, the, all three in the way that they have rejected God's law. And we do the same thing today. Uh, sin isn't simply a failure to do what God says. And sin isn't simply a rebelling against what he has said. It is also when we twist or bend what he says to us. We take scripture and we twist it to fit our preferences. We often do this to make ourselves feel righteous about how we're doing life, about how we, what we figured out. Sometimes we hang this like a heavy yoke on someone else, often misleading them. We can twist scripture to let ourselves off the hook. Attempt to remove guilt and shame by what we know is wrong. We can twist scripture by ignoring or neglecting passages that go against what we prefer. You see, there's nothing new really under the sun, is there? We're not all that different from the people of Judah. But the great hope is that God has washed away all of the guilt and the stain of our sin, cleansing us from all unrighteous. No matter if we rebel, no matter if we miss the mark, or no matter if we twist or bend his law, no matter how we sin against him, his promise to, it, to us is that he has forgiven our sins. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Yes, he would bring the people back and restore them physically to the land. First horizon that we've talked about. But there is a second horizon. Why? Well, first, what good is the abundance of prosperity if your sins still separate you from God? What good is the land and the cattle and the sheep and all that was promised to them if your sin still separates you from God? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The greater fulfillment of the promise, the great and hidden thing, is that their sins would be forgiven through the atonement of the coming Messiah. The city is described as being presently made desolate, and then later he describes it as having been made desolate. Uh, but it would one day become a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all nations, verse 9. And here the covenant language used with Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, 
that great and hidden thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we now know is the answer, would go out to the nations that they would fear and trust in Yahweh. So in the first horizon, it would result in them physically seeing God restore the nation of Israel. He would remove their shame as Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. We know the story of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. But as we know, the nations needed more than just seeing this, didn't they? What do they need? They need to hear the message of the gospel. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the gospel, we have to get to the gospel. It's not a gospel that Israel would simply be restored to the land. That's that's part of the fulfillment, and it did happen. But that that doesn't get us to sins being dealt with. The gospel has to be proclaimed. And this prophecy is pointing to the nations being received, all peoples, tribes, and tongues being received into the gospel hope. And so for that reason, we have to understand that this means more than simply a restoration of real estate and possessions. For the blessing promised to Abraham mentioned here, to reach its fulfillment, the gospel must be proclaimed. And so as a church, we continue to be committed to the Great Commission, and we must be not only in our giving. I think in many ways that's the easy part. What about in our personal lives, the opportunities that God gives us to speak of the hope within us? We must also be committed to the Great Commission personally. In verses 10 to 13, a contrast is provided. And again, has, is, is Jeremiah seeing a prophetic vision of what the city will look like afterwards? Or does he write this after he has seen it? Either way, it's a vivid picture of, of just absolute desolation. Without man or beast, no sounds of gladness or singing. And yet there's a contrast that a day is coming when the singing and the gladness will return as the people will one day say with the psalmist, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. One day they would again march up to the temple singing and shouting this. Additionally, the people will again see shepherds resting their flocks all throughout the land. And can we not but think some shepherds just in a few few years, so to speak, down the road from this, who would be the first to receive the good news of the Savior's birth? Verse 14 begins with the familiar phrase, Behold, the days are coming, signaling a prophecy of the future in which God promises to fulfill the promise. And the word promise is a synonym for covenant, which is clearly the meaning in verse 15. It's, it's not a mistake that Jeremiah lumps all of these three or all these four here together. Now here he's pointing to the Davidic covenant when he says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called The Lord is our righteousness. Who has done this? Who is the only one who has done this? That the Lord is our righteousness. This is clearly speaking of the Messiah. That Jesus has come and become our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is our hope. The promise to David was that he would have, have, have one who would sit on the throne forever. That's in 2 Samuel 7.16, but it's repeated all throughout Scripture, uh, Old Testament, specifically the Psalms. It was, you know, in the Psalm that we read this morning, we see this promise again and again. And yet, 
No king is sitting on the throne of David since the fall of, or since the you know Babylonians come in and 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 take take the 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 people out into exile. So what is the fulfillment pointing to? Well, it signals the coming of the Messiah again, the King of Kings, who would be born in the line of David according to Matthew's genealogy, spoken of in Revelation nineteen sixteen. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we have the Davidic covenant and the promise of the throne. And next we get the promise of priest. Verse 18, the priestly role of the Levites to make sacrifices forever. Now, earthly priests have not served in this role since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So it must point to something else or this is not a true prophecy. But in Hebrews, we see what Christ has done. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 10, 12. And now he sits at the right hand of God on high as our priestly mediator, having provided the only sacrifice necessary for our sins. So Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is king forever, establishing the new covenant by which we know the forgiveness of our sins, being made righteous through him by faith. Now, in the closing section of the book of Consolation, the word again comes to Jeremiah, and he goes back to run through the covenants, beginning with Noah, the created order, day and night. This was the Noahic covenant, that creation would be preserved until all the promises of God are fulfilled. David and the Levitical priests are again mentioned, bringing to mind the covenants given to David and the covenant at Mount Sinai. And then in verse 22, the Abrahamic covenant is signaled through the phrase, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. You remember back in Genesis 15 when God called Abraham to walk out under the night sky and look up, and he said, count the stars if you are able, uh, implying that, no, Abraham, you're not. But look up at the stars. You can't count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Just as Abraham was saved by faith and the promises of God, so we who are trusting in Christ alone are saved and can with confidence rejoice that according to Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of of Abraham, we are brought in to the promise by faith. Again, the word comes to Jeremiah in verses 23 to the end that the covenant promises stand and will not be undone. As Jeremiah witnesses uh, the nations noting that it appears God has rejected the people. That's what the nations are surrounding. They see the destruction of the Babylonian army against Jerusalem and the nations say he's rejected both Israel and Judah now. And, uh, and there's no hope for them. And, 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 and so Jeremiah you know, notes this. This is what the people are saying. And yet he tells the people, yet God will restore you. He reiterates that there is one, an offspring, singular, who would come to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, covenant language. This Messiah would be, would be bringing restoration and mercy for all who by faith are children of Abraham, sons and daughters of the promise adopted as the very children of God. Do you see how it all fits together? It really is beautiful. Creation, as we look out to it, certainly testifies to God's power, his might, his strength, but it also sings of his promises as the sun rises every morning and sets every night. 
Over and over again, we see that God keeps his promises. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest with some room, wiggle room if you're in Florida. But they all signal the faithfulness of God, right? I mean, it has been a little cooler. Uh, we can thank God for that. But the, but the changing of the seasons, the sun tilts back and forth. It rotates around. It moves around the sun. And it all points to God's faithfulness. Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations. And he wrote this after the fall of Jerusalem, and he penned these words. Lamentations are are, are five poems that really lament the fall of Jerusalem in this time. So it's a great companion piece. It might mean something more if you've ever read Lamentations and kind of struggle with what does this mean, how can I understand it. Given our study through Jeremiah, I would encourage you to read it. But in Lamentations 3.22, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. With our eyes, we see sickness and suffering and and injustice and disappointment and heartache. That's our experience. But God's word speaks to us in these pages that we would look up with eyes of faith and see the one who has come to bring health and healing, to reveal an abundance of prosperity and security. How? By forgiving all the guilt of our sin and rebellion and crediting to us his righteousness. Because of his great love for us, we can now sing of a peace that endures, his presence with us to cheer and to guide us. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all ours with 10,000 more beyond our ability to comprehend or imagine. The great and hidden things spoken of in this chapter have come into full view in the person of Jesus. Great is our God's faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the hope of the new covenant and the fact that Jesus has come according to your promise that everything you said has come true. And so we know that everything that is far off in the future will also come true, that you will bring to completion all that you have begun. And Lord, we long for the day when Jesus returns and all is made right and sin and death are removed forever. We long for that day when we will enjoy in your presence uh, freedom from, from the, 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 the power of sin, the effects of sin, the penalty of sin, everything, Lord, to be in your presence, to be uh, free from all of that. We long for that day. But until that day comes, Lord, would you help us see with clarity all that is ours in Jesus, that he has accomplished what we could not do for ourselves He is our righteousness. I pray today, Lord, for anyone who has yet to trust in him as their righteousness, that you would lead them to yourself, that they would fall upon your mercy and receive by faith what is the free gift of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have trusted, would you cause us to cling to ever more tightly the hope that is the gospel for us, that we would not be swayed by the evil in this world, by the heartbreak that we encounter, by the disappointments that we experience, Lord. May our hearts not be swayed, but may we keep our eyes fixed on you, for you are faithful and you never change. Lord, cause us to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.